Over the last decade, computation and storage have moved from on-premise hardware into the cloud data center. Instead of having large servers on-premise, companies started to outsource their server workloads to cloud service providers. At the same time, there's been a proliferation of devices at the edge. The most common edge device is your smartphone, but there are many other smart devices that are growing in number. Drones, smart cars, Nest thermostats, smart refrigerators, IoT sensors, next-generation centrifuges. Each of these devices contains computational hardware. Another class of edge device is the edge server. Edge servers are used to facilitate faster response times than your core application servers. For example, Software Engineering Daily uses a content delivery network for audio files. These audio files are distributed throughout the world on edge servers. The core application logic of Software Engineering Daily runs on a WordPress website, and that WordPress application is distributed to far fewer servers than our audio files because the audio files are the content that get distributed through a content delivery network. Cloud computing and edge computing both refer to computers that can serve requests. Technically, all of these things could be treated as servers. The edge is commonly used to refer to devices that are closer to the user, so they will deliver faster responses. The cloud refers to big, bulky servers that can do heavy-duty processing workloads, such as training machine learning models or issuing a large distributed MapReduce query. As the volume of computation and data increases, we look for better ways to utilize our resources. And we're realizing that the devices at the edge are underutilized. In today's episode, Kenton Varda explains how and why to deploy application logic to the edge. He works at Cloudflare on a project called Cloudflare Workers, which is a way to deploy JavaScript to edge servers. Edge servers are, for example, the hundreds of data centers around the world that are used by Cloudflare for caching. Kenton was previously on the show to discuss protocol buffers, which is a project that he led while he was at Google. And if you want to find that episode, as well as many other episodes about protocols, serverless technology, many other topics, you can download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS or Android. These apps have all 650 of our episodes in a searchable, categorized format. We have recommendations, related links, discussions around the episodes, it's all free and open source, and if you're interested in getting involved in our open source community, we have lots of people working on the project, and we do our best to be friendly and inviting to new people coming in looking for their first open source project. You can find that project at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. You can find our Slack channel at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We would love to have you as part of the community if you're interested in working on some open source software. With that, let's get on with this episode. Kenton Vardy, you were last on the show to discuss protocol buffers, and you're back on the show. Thanks for returning. It's good to be here. You work at Cloudflare. On the last episode, we talked about protocol buffers and then your company, Sandstorm, and then how you eventually wound up at Cloudflare. And today we're talking about some technologies that are related to what you work on at Cloudflare. So maybe you could briefly explain what the company does for people who don't know. Well, the way I like to explain it to people like my parents is uh, Cloudflare runs about 10% of the internet. More specifically, it's 10% or so of web requests. HTTP requests end up going through Cloudflare's edge network, where uh, some people call it a CDN, but it's a bit more than that. Let's put it this way. If you have a website and you put it behind Cloudflare, then when people visit your site, their web requests go to Cloudflare first, where Cloudflare can do a number of things with our, our network of, we have servers in 118 locations, I think is the number today. We can cache resources from your site so they can be served directly from that location that's much closer to the user than your servers might be in order to respond more quickly. And a slew of other features, security features, blocking denial of service requests, blocking you know hacking attempts, there's a long list, though. You have to go to the website to see. Right. So at a basic level, people could consider Cloudflare to be a caching service, but it's more generalizable than that. It's edge servers. So if you 
want to service a user's request, many times that user request can be served entirely by an edge server as opposed to your core infrastructure, which might be on Google Cloud or AWS or Heroku or hosted on your own servers. You would want to use Cloudflare for the majority of those requests if you could because the distribution of all those different edge servers is going to make them closer to the user and therefore you're going to get more performant responses. So we're going to be talking about these edge servers. How would you define an edge server? So there's a lot of different things people mean when they say edge. What we mean is, so our network of 100 and 118 data centers around the world. They're basically servers that are spread out all over the place so that they are close to the end users. And like that's basically it. Like We have servers that are within 10 milliseconds of latency of 90% of the world's population. And there's lots of ways you can use that. And when you compare that to a model like AWS or Microsoft or Google Cloud, these other cloud providers... Is there a competitive advantage? Like, are the servers more geographically distributed than those other cloud providers? Yeah. So usually when you use something like AWS or Google Cloud, when you start out, you have your servers and you decide one particular region that you put them in. And as you grow, you might do multi-homing and have uh, servers in multiple regions. But the number, of, the total number of re- regions that AWS or Google Cloud give you is, is, you know, it's a handful. There's like a few locations in the United States, a few locations in Europe, a few in Asia, but it's not a huge number. Uh, but then what you would do is with Cloudflare, you would put Cloudflare on top of that. So you use these together. It's not either or. So then you can leverage uh, Cloudflare having servers everywhere to make your site faster and more secure and more reliable. Hmm. We've done some shows about using IoT edge servers. So we've had some conversations about the idea of connected cars, for example, once we have all these cars on the road that have servers inside of them, essentially, like the, a world full of Teslas. Uh, or when you talk about you know all the IoT devices that we might get in the coming future, your IoT refrigerator, your IoT speakers, your IoT light switches, who knows? And then drones, for example, if we have drones buzzing around outside, all of these different devices could be used for edge computing. How do you think about edge computing on data centers versus on IoT devices? So this is one of those other definitions of edge that some people use. I think that the definition we're using goes back a little further than this this newer definition. But yeah, sometimes when people say edge, they mean all these IoT devices. Now, that's not usually what we mean when we're talking about our edge network of data centers. This is just a different definition, I guess. Mm, yes. Okay. And so many people are familiar with the idea of a CDN. And let's say you make a request for an image on the internet. And the first time you request that image, perhaps it's served by the source of where that image is. Maybe it's in a Amazon S3 bucket somewhere on the internet. And because a user has requested it, that image gets stored in a cache somewhere. Maybe it gets stored in a CDN on the edge or somewhere on Cloudflare, if you want to call Cloudflare CDN, gets stored in Cloudflare perhaps, so that the next time somebody else accesses it, that access is faster. So this is the common model of just throwing storage on an edge server as a CDN. We've had CDNs for a long time, Akamai, uh, Libsyn, my, the, the company that serves the podcasts that I have, are it's served from a CDN. These are often the content delivery networks because you have this content that's often Netflix has tons of CDNs or has tons of has a, I don't know what they use for a CDN but they have tons of content throughout CDNs but a CDN thinking of edge servers just for CDN purposes is a somewhat limited idea it, and I think what we're going to get to talking about is the fact that you don't just want to put storage on edge devices you actually want to put compute logic on the edge you don't just want to be using this as a CDN why would I want to deploy logic to the edge? Well, sometimes you want to interact with the user in a way that is not static. So with just a cache, all you can do is uh, cache static assets like images and such that don't change. 
But, you know, say you have a website and it's like a news site. So it contains mostly static content in that the, the articles don't change very often. But people log into your site because they have subscriptions. And once you once they log in, now you want to say at the top, like, hello, X, you are logged in. And that that's a little change to your site. That now means that the pages are all different for that user than they are for everyone else. So now they can no longer share a cache effectively. I mean, you can do it in JavaScript, perhaps, but sometimes people don't want to do it in JavaScript. So if you could write some code that runs on the edge and can substitute in the user's name from there, then you can return results much faster rather than going all the way back to your home server. Right. Does this start to become something where, you know, if we start to deploy some logic to the edge, you could imagine a slippery slope where, well, let's just put our all of our servers on the edge. Let's service every single user request from the edge. Why is that not a slippery slope? Why would we not start doing that? We don't know yet if this is where this is going to go. For now, our, our goal in making it so you can write code on the edge is more around uh, these kinds of optimizations. But uh, over time, we'll, we'll see what happens. So, I mean, one problem, though, is, of course, you do still have a database somewhere, usually. You have some storage that you have to talk to. And that, at least today, usually isn't decentralized. So you're going to have to make requests back to that database. And if you're making more requests to the database than you are communications with the user, then maybe the code should be closer to the database. Really, you want your code to run so that it's closest to whatever you're communicating with the most. Right. Yeah, so if I've got like the softwaredaily.com, the, the site that we have, when a user logs in and we want to load the episodes that the user has queued up or that the, the ones that they've listened to, if we serviced that request from an edge server, the edge server, if it had to make multiple database requests, it would have to make round trips between the edge server and the database. And the database is not sitting on the edge server because part of this idea of edge computing that we're going to get into is that you're going to want to put like lightweight things on the edge servers because this is how these edge servers get to take advantage of economies of scale. This is why they're not big, bulky, you know, you're not throwing your entire database on there, although eventually maybe you will. Yeah, at least for now. I have some ideas around this. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, then we should probably hurry up and get to this design. But anyway, to just to continue my example, if you stored that compute logic for the, the business logic for servicing the core user request you would have to make the round trip between that edge server and the database or multiple round trips if you had to make multiple database requests to compose the user's information, like the episodes they've listened to and the episodes they've downloaded and whatnot. And so what you were saying is you would want to keep that kind of business logic closer to the actual database. Depending on how you do it, but yeah. Right, depending on how you do it. Okay, so I think we've given people a good overview for logic at the edge versus how, where you would want to put logic on the, your core server infrastructure. You work on this project called Cloudflare Workers, which is basically the idea is you put this logic at the edge. Can you give an outline for what these Cloudflare Workers do? Yeah, so the name Cloudflare Workers is derived from Web Workers, which is a, a standard feature that browsers have of basically JavaScript that runs in the background. And specifically, there's a, there's a kind called Service Workers, which is some JavaScript that runs in the background and can intercept all requests from the browser that go to back to your server and can like rewrite them and such. What we did is we said, well, we want people to be able to intercept requests to their server when they reach Cloudflare and rewrite them there. But that's basically, coding-wise, the same concept. So we took the service workers standard that already exists in browsers and made it so you can, you can deploy service workers that run on Cloudflare's servers instead. So basically, you're writing JavaScript that runs on the server, intercepts web requests, can respond to them directly, can call back to the origin server, can call back to other servers, basically do whatever you want, and then eventually reply. Service workers intercept web requests that are destined for your servers. Explain how service workers are traditionally used. So 
one of the major goals of the service worker standard originally was to be able to serve offline applications. So the idea was that, you know, you have like a, a document editor app or something. Think of Google Docs. So a lot of this work was done at Google. And you want to be able to go on an airplane and keep editing your document. And since it's a, a web app, traditionally you can't do that. But so what a service worker can do is pre-download all of the resources for that web app and store them in the local cache and then be able to serve them out of that cache because it intercepts all web requests going to that server. So it can act as like a, a stand-in server that runs locally. Now, the use case for Cloudflare workers is, is actually very different, but the code ends up looking similar. Mm-hmm. So describe how service workers are used in these edge workers. Edge workers is actually the internal name, but the official brand name is Cloudflare workers. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I believe one of our competitors has a, a product they're calling Edge Workers. Oh, no. Okay. So in Cloudflare Workers, I mean, it's you write your code in the same way as if you were writing a service worker. So the basic structure of your code is you register an event handler that will be called whenever a web request comes in. And then the event handler essentially returns a promise for a future response. And then it can do some some IO, it can make other requests, outbound requests in order to build that response and eventually return that response. Can you give a simple example for how somebody would want to use one of these workers, how they would deploy their code to it, what they would be deploying it for, and how those requests would be serviced? Right. So I I gave an example earlier of, you know, you want to substitute in the user's name into some HTML and uh, you want to do that while uh, being able to cache most of the content to that HTML between users. So you'd write some code that basically the first thing it does is it requests the same, well, so it receives this request for some URL, for some page, and it makes the same request on to your origin server. And so it receives back this HTML that isn't personalized for the user. And then it can have some code that reads in that, the HTML content and does a search and replace for, for some string where you know that's the place where you're supposed to insert the, the username and then writes that out. Other use cases, though, there's tons of use cases for this. Other things you might do are like if you want a custom load balancing policy, so you want to send different requests to different servers depending on some, some arbitrary signal, or you want to serve, say you have some resources that are in an S3 bucket, but you have other parts of your site that are dynamically generated. So for the, the dynamic resources, you want to send it on to your server running somewhere, but for the, the static ones, you want to just pull them straight out of S3 without bothering your home server. These are all things you can do with this. Just to set some context, what's the penalty for people who are not using this kind of edge logic today? Are we just talking about latency or does it result in additional costs? What are the savings that you get from deploying more logic to the edge? So it's highly dependent on the use case. But yeah, in in a lot of cases, it's latency, the latency of going all the way back to your your origin server for something that could have been done with some simple logic at the edge. You know, some people might use this for, well, so in the, the, the case I mentioned of like, I want to serve some resources from S3 instead of from my origin server, you're saving serving costs because normally the way you'd implement that is you would have your origin server go fetch the things from S3 when it recognizes that this is a resource that has to come from S3. And that means a bunch more traffic is going through your origin server that really doesn't need to be and is going all the way back over the internet to your origin server instead of S3 is replicated all over the world already. So fetching it directly would be faster. So there's a lot of a lot of things you can save. Right. So if this gives programmable logic to these edge servers that might have previously just been used for declarative logic like you know you declare that this is when your cd you want your cdn to be used is versus the imperative model of actually having executable code that's going to be deployed to these edge servers does that change the kind of like for you as the cloud service provider as as cloudflare does that change 
what kinds of things you need to deploy to all these servers that you have throughout the world, all of these edge servers that you have available? Well, yeah. So we have to deploy the worker runtime, the JavaScript runtime, to all of our machines, all of our edge servers around the world. This is you know, the main project that I work on is, is building this core runtime. It's basically just another background process that runs on all these machines that when we receive a web request that we know has a, a worker script configured, then it gets forwarded to this, this daemon. If the script does sub-requests, this outbound HTTP request, and those get forwarded back to the back in the front door, basically. Yeah, so this code that gets deployed to your edge servers for logic, it's in JavaScript. Correction. Um, so the code I was talking about is actually a C++ program that embeds V8, the JavaScript engine. Now, oh. so I, I was talking about our code. The customer's code, if you're a Cloudflare customer and you're using this, you go into the Cloudflare configuration dashboard and there's a place where you can enter your script and you can preview what the results will look like. But once you deploy that, then that script gets also sent out to all of the edge machines. And so then my code on the edge will load that script as needed and use it. Okay, right. And to give people a little more clarity, V8 is what's sitting in your Chrome browser. If you use Google Chrome, I think it's basically... It's, so it's an execution engine for JavaScript. Like it, com- what is it? It compiles your JavaScript down to bytecode and then executes the JavaScript bytecode. Is that how it works? Yeah. Well, it, it can do a variety of things. So usually, you know, it will parse the JavaScript code and it will start out just just basically parsing it into some internal structures, which it will it will run the code like an interpreter would, going through each line and, and doing what it says. But then if some code is run particularly often, then it invokes the just-in-time compiler, the the JIT, which turns it into assembly, or not assembly, but machine code at that point. That's typically how these work. Uh, V8 is a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the basics. I really need to do a show on V8. People have asked for it. Maybe if you know some V8 expert, we can figure out how you know who who I should interview after this. Uh, after the show, but I'm sure since you worked at Google for a while, you probably know a few V8 experts. You know, I, I don't know if I met them at Google, but we're talking to them now. So, yeah. Okay. Um, oh, very, very interesting. Tell me a little bit about that space. Like the V8 space, does does Node, Node must use V8, right? Yes. Node was one of the first interesting uses of V8 outside of Chrome. They said, yeah, let's make a, a server-side JavaScript environment. Let's use V8 as the starting point. But interestingly, Node is not designed to run code that's not trusted, whereas the browser is and Cloudflare Workers is. Like We need to protect ourselves against customers who might want to run code that's malicious. So we do lots of things to prevent that from being a problem that isn't present in, in Node.js. Hmm. So just to give people more clarity, this is why you don't have Node.js running for this execution environment of the edge logic. You have your own worker environment that's built off of V8. Is, it, was it custom built? You built it yourself? Yep. Okay. Could you maybe contrast it with Node.js? Like this Because exe- you're describing a server-side execution environment for JavaScript, but it's not Node. Right. So Node.js was designed to allow you to write traditional servers in JavaScript. Now, on a traditional server, you're writing a bunch of code that you know belongs to you. You know where it came from. You wrote most of it. And you're running it on your private machine. And so th- there's no security concern in which you're worried that part of that code might be malicious. So Node.js really isn't designed to, to, to protect against that. So the code running in Node.js can access the file system, can make arbitrary network requests, can do whatever it wants. Whereas in Cloudflare Workers, we are running code from potentially multiple different customers on the same machine. So we have to do a lot of things to make sure that the code, those, those different customers' codes can't interfere with each other in any way. That includes, like, they shouldn't be able to obviously read each other's memory. They shouldn't be able to affect the outcome of, of each other. And they also shouldn't be able to consume resources to the point where the others get starved. And these are all different uh, interesting problems to solve. 
Yes, and you did write about this in an article that I'll include in the show notes called Introducing Cloudflare Workers, and you talked about the design decision not to use containers, and this is interesting to me because I've done all these shows recently about Kubernetes and containerization and scheduling and serverless, and these things are all related, like serverless Many of the implementations, well, actually, the main implementation that I've seen is this idea where you have code that's sitting in a database somewhere, and it's sitting in a database on a cloud provider, and when a user makes a request for that code, it gets dynamically loaded onto a container and then invoked from that container. And this, from the outside looking in, somebody might look at the Cloudflare worker model and think, oh, this is serverless. They're just using edge servers and implementing serverless, and they're probably using containers, but that's not what you're using. So give a little more explanation for the design decision not to use containers. Right. So as you know, I previously worked on something called Sandstorm, which actually included a custom container engine, which I wrote. So Initially, when we started the workers project, that was my, my first inclination was, well, we'll give people containers and then they can run arbitrary Linux programs in that container. The problem with that is uh, even though containers are known for being far more efficient than VMs, they're still not efficient enough because we have millions of customers and you know thousands of machines around the world. Um, and we want like every customer's code to be able to run uh, in every location all at once. The overhead of if each one of those customers had their own process, their own program running, that just that takes too much memory on each machine. And the overhead of switching between processes for you know, potentially every request going to, to different origins would just be too high. So what we need to be able to do is have them all in one process, all in the same address space, while still having the strong security, which is what V8 does, which is what V8 was built to do. So in Chrome, for instance, when you have an iframe inside of a page and that iframe um, belongs to a completely different site, they're still running in the same process and they're relying on V8 to make it so that the, the page in the iframe can't attack the page that's framing it or vice versa. So it's partly security, partly noisy neighbor issues. Well, the reason for using V8 instead of using containers is performance, is resource usage, is scalability. Well, that and I would say that containers have had some security issues as well, but that's another story. But mostly it's the performance issues of like, this way we can most of the implementation underneath each of these scripts, most of the Cloudflare workers implementation can be shared between all of them instead of loading separate copies and things like that. So why is it that all of these cloud providers, well, as far as I know, I mean, they haven't talked much publicly about how their serverless systems are actually implemented, but I know that this common model is one that uses the container-based scheduling or at least that's what IBM OpenWhisk is. Actually, that's the only one that I actually can definitively say that's how it works, is this this container scheduling model. But assuming that that's how the other ones work, assuming the you know AWS does use containers, as that's at least the rumor, I suppose, that I've heard from other people, are they crazy? I mean, I assume that they the advantage that they get out of these serverless platforms like AWS Lambda is they get these economies of scale where they have all these users running compute. And then so they have these little blobs of compute that they can allocate efficiently, and they do so using containers. Why wouldn't they just do that with V8? What's the difference between the design of a serverless system like AWS Lambda and a serverless system like Cloudflare Workers? Well, so the big limitation, obviously, is that V8 runs JavaScript. It doesn't run arbitrary code in arbitrary languages. Now, there is WebAssembly, which opens that up to you know, C and Go and so on, but it's still, it's not, it's not native code. But to, to answer this in a different way, and you know, I should caution that like, I, I don't work for these companies, so I don't know exactly what their, their motivations are. But I think that a lot of the developments in the server infrastructure space over the years have started from bulky server technology 
that is is bloated, that uses lots of resources, lots of memory, takes forever to start up, things like that. All these things that didn't traditionally matter when you had monolithic servers. So like it used to be you have your your gigantic server written in Java and it takes 30 seconds or more just to start. And it uses gigabytes of memory. And that was fine. No one cared because you, you have all that available to you. And it doesn't matter how long it takes to start. But we've been taking these server-side technologies and trying to fit them into smaller containers, if you will, so that we can deploy more instances of them and have them running in more locations at once. And they haven't scaled down very well. It's really hard to take something bloated and then make it leaner. Now, what we're doing with with Cloudflare Workers is we're actually starting from the other end of the stack, the browser-side technology, and scaling it up. So browsers have for a long time had the problem that they download some JavaScript and they need to have it running you know, within milliseconds to uh, satisfy the user who wants to see this web page. And the user's there literally waiting. So V8 has been designed for a long time to start fast. And that helps us with, with workers because it means that we can get your code deployed worldwide within literally a couple of seconds. And we can load code. You know, if a, if a request comes in and your code isn't running yet, we can have it running within a couple of milliseconds. And that just makes the whole system so much more scalable and allows us to run your code in more locations at once. So we're with Lambda, for instance, normally, like, yeah, you, you create your Lambda function, but it's not going to run in a lot of different places in the world at once. It, you know, it'll run in a few locations. It's not going to run in hundreds. Unless you get, I mean, maybe if you get enough traffic to warrant it, but normally it wouldn't. And we can actually do that. The other thing about these serverless systems like AWS Lambda is that they have this cold start issue because the code has to be loaded onto the container and maybe even have to install some packages and stuff on the container before it can actually service the request. It has to get the the code itself out of the database. If people find this totally confusing, we've done some shows previously about this you can check out. But there's this cold start time. So with the Cloudflare worker model where you've got just JavaScript that runs on V8, when a user deploys their code, like if I deploy some custom logic to, you know, render a template differently on the fly, for example, some custom Cloudflare worker logic, does that code sit in a place where it can execute immediately or does it sit in a database where it has to be loaded from the database onto the edge worker before it executes? So there's two steps. There's distributing the code to the edge, and then there's loading it for execution. We distribute the code to the edge the same way we distribute any other configuration, that it gets worldwide within a couple of seconds. Now the code is on all of the machines, ready to be run when needed. When we actually want to run that code, we, you know, load it up from disk and parse it and execute it, that takes a couple of milliseconds because V8 is designed for this. So basically, with Cloudflare workers, there is no cold start time. It's just ready to go. I see. You mentioned WebAssembly. With WebAssembly, you could actually run any language because WebAssembly is this idea that WebAssembly or Asm.js, where it's you have a subset of JavaScript, and every like any language could theoretically compile down to this subset of JavaScript, and then the subset of JavaScript runs extremely effectively on V8. Could you just remind us what WebAssembly is? Yeah, so what you were just describing was Asm.js, which was a a previous attempt at a a similar idea. Um, WebAssembly is actually a a new binary format. They they said, okay, this whole idea of like encoding assembly in, you know, as specially constructed JavaScript turned out to be kind of weird. So they went ahead and, and defined a format. It's like a machine code, except it's not specific to any particular machine, and it's designed to load within the V8 sandbox or within any JavaScript sandbox. And you can target a traditional compiler at these. So you can compile C++ code to WebAssembly. You get a, instead of an executable binary that runs on your system, you get a WebAssembly binary that you can load into a browser. And other languages, other compiled languages like Rust or like Go can all all target WebAssembly. So some people are really excited about WebAssembly. And I have trouble 
identifying what the process of WebAssembly becoming big, or I guess having a noticeable impact on the way that we consume the internet will unfold. But for example, my friend Pete Hunt, he tweeted something a while ago about just all of the things that you can do on WebAssembly, and I just didn't really understand it. It made me want to do more shows on it, but could you give me some context for why people are excited about WebAssembly, where we are with it, how it's going to change things in the future, or is it is it an open question as to whether it's going to change things? Well, I can give you my take, where people will disagree. I think WebAssembly is mainly going to be important to people who need to write extremely high-performance code like games. Things that where you can't have garbage collection pauses every now and then because it will harm your frame rate. Or use cases where you have existing code that's written in C++ that you need to be able to, to run in these environments. These are all use cases where WebAssembly makes a big difference. I don't see a future where everything's written in WebAssembly because, frankly, JavaScript is good enough for most application-level use cases. I think there's a lot of people who are excited about WebAssembly because they hate JavaScript. And my take is, yeah, the language is it has its warts, but it has improved a lot over the years. And at this point... And, and given that everyone knows JavaScript and, and it works well for most use cases, I, I think it's here to stay. And most things will continue to be written in JavaScript with WebAssembly for optimization, basically. So if you want to use WebAssembly, what do you have to do? Do you have to write some specific stuff for it? Like if I want to write, if, you, if I want my C++ application to run on the web, what do I have to do for that? Yeah, so first you have to compile it with a compiler that supports targeting WebAssembly so that you get the, the WebAssembly binary as an output. The other thing is you need to code against a different set of APIs. You don't have your traditional operating system. You don't have like a file system that you can open files from anymore. In fact, you have almost nothing to code against. And you have to often, I should caution that I don't have a whole lot of experience writing things in WebAssembly, but my understanding is you have to implement a shim in JavaScript that like provides the functionality that's needed so that you can then call that from WebAssembly. And that like the HTML DOM API, how, how you would normally manipulate a website from JavaScript, mostly is not available directly from WebAssembly because taking that whole API and importing it into a different language and creating those, those bindings would just be actually very complicated. Usually, instead, what WebAssembly is used for is like heavy number crunching, or I believe you can call OpenGL graphics uh, rendering from it because obviously the the gaming use case needs that. Okay, let's I guess get back to the main topic from WebAssembly. Now that gives me two shows I need to do related to JavaScript. So let's talk a little bit more about these use cases for these Edge, sorry, Cloudflare workers, and then. We'll talk a little bit about the future, because you mentioned that you've got some plans or some intentions or ideas, at least. But to reframe this product slash idea for people, can you describe some of the other use cases? So we've talked about expanding HTML templates dynamically. We've talked about some caching-related things. But I know there's also, for example, parallelization. You know, a user request could come in and your service worker that your Cloudflare worker, service worker, is positioned to take the request and intercept it and then parallelize it. So maybe you could talk about parallelization. I think what you're referring to there is like if your your page has several different components that need to be loaded and assembled together. Is that, is that right? I was actually just talking about something that I saw referred to in your, your blog post. I wasn't exactly sure what you were referring to with the parallelization, but I could see what you just described as being that's parallelizable. Yeah, so so it might have been in the, I, I don't remember exactly what you're referring to, but it might have been in the, the section comparing against, there's some other frameworks for programmable proxies where they don't really allow you to do several sub-requests, we call them, in parallel. So that those are the outgoing requests back to your origin server or maybe to S3 or maybe to some other API. 
With Cloudflare workers, you can do as many of those requests as you want. You can do them in parallel, fire off several of them, then wait for them to come back and then, you know, assemble your, your result from them. So like one use case that we've seen is, is someone has a GraphQL query that comes in from a client and uh, GraphQL queries is often a bundle of smaller queries. And in their case, each of these smaller queries is independently very cacheable, like often requesting the same things over and over. But the bundle together often contains different things depending on which client is asking. And so the overall request is not very cacheable, but the components are. So what they want to do is split it up and do these requests in parallel and have each one come back from, directly from cache so that they can get a much better cache hit rate. Right. Yeah, I was going to say this sounds exactly like, well, it sounds very related to uh, GraphQL, which is this system for federating requests to multiple different data sources. If you get a, you have a GraphQL uh, server in the, in the typical model of GraphQL that interprets a high-level request that requires several different resources, and it federates that request to all the different servers that might need. If you have got like a user request that requires the user's favorites and the user's likes and the user's comments and the user's friends, all of those things may be in different databases. And so GraphQL queries might contain, you know, a query for all four of those different things. And then your GraphQL server can federate those requests out to those different database servers such that the person who's programming against GraphQL doesn't have to think about hitting all of those individual servers. They can just think of one GraphQL query. Right. And GraphQL federation server, especially if all of the separate databases being queried are in different locations around the world, having that federation point be something that runs on the edge makes a lot of sense. And you're saying you can do that with, I guess, because you can just, because you know people just run these things in JavaScript, so you might as well keep your GraphQL server on the edge. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That sounds very useful. Do you know of people who are doing that in production? Well, so this is all very new. I don't know if anyone's doing specifically that in production yet, but we do have a customer who wants to do something to that effect. But yeah, by the way, uh, Cloudflare Workers is... Currently, our state is we have a, a small number of, of beta customers testing it out, and we plan to open it up to more people in a month or two, you know, if things go well. But we have to, this is something we have to roll out very slowly because, like, if we just open the doors and let everyone in on day one, like, this is a big change to our network. So we have to be careful, but we're getting there. But just to comment on other use cases, basically, we found the most interesting use cases are things that we we didn't anticipate like you know we come up with these you know simple like cacheability use cases and such but then then we keep seeing customers who come to us with really interesting things that we never would have imagined and i can't actually like go into a lot of detail about them because you know that that's private to those customers but the possibilities are basically infinite and we're we're just really excited to see what other you know what developers come up with well, I'll explore one thing that I would be surprised if your customers are not coming to you with this use case is the, the machine learning model edge deployment, because we've had a number of different shows about this where people have commented on how cool this could be or how cool this is, where basically you keep your machine learning models closer to the edge because the user requests the model and actually machine learning is data intensive but the data intensive and compute intensive part is the training process not necessarily the serving process and also the model you can have models that don't take up a huge footprint so somebody could be having their machine learning model sitting at the edge serving user requests and then it gets just gets updated over time periodically because the computation is running elsewhere the computation of retraining the model is certainly not happening at the edge are you optimistic about the machine learning applications yeah um, that's one of many things that, that we've thought about and we're excited about haven't done a whole lot of experimentation with it yet but it looks promising Yes. So earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that you saw potential for more stuff being pushed to the edge. And when you said this, I was thinking of, this is not entirely related, but this 
serverless database that Amazon came out with recently. I don't know if you saw it. Did you see this thing, the serverless Aurora database? I haven't looked from, at it, no. From Amazon? Okay, well, it was... I, I don't understand a whole lot about it, but basically the idea is just that it's a, it's a database that scales up and down. And I think the reason people are excited about it is it's a database that can take up a small footprint. So, you know, if you've got some service that occasionally gets very spiky workloads and needs to request a lot of stuff from the database, you want your your database to be able to scale up. But, you know, if that only happens for one hour during the day, you don't want to be paying for all the extra database nodes that it scales up to. Uh, you just want to pay for like the minimum single database instance or something like that. And you could imagine having that kind of serverless database on the edge where it takes up a small footprint and then maybe you keep replicas away from the edge. And I think this is essentially what we're talking about. When we're talking about what's the, what are the limitations of the edge servers is like, can you get your database to the edge? Am I, am I portraying things properly? Yeah, so... The really interesting problem here is, you know, as I said, Cloudflare has hundreds of locations today. We're planning to have a few years, thousands of locations around the world. But we don't want developers to have to think about what locations their code is running in. And when you have a database, you don't think about where it is. You don't think about what data is stored where. You just have your data. And if you're querying that potentially from thousands of locations around the world, there's some synchronization cost that, that goes into that. And most database designs are fairly centralized where you're going to end up doing your database requests all the way to this the central location where it can process transactions relative to all the other requests coming in. But I don't think that design takes proper advantage of the network that we're building. So we're thinking about what kind of storage would allow your code to have fast storage access no matter where it's running or like be able to move the data around the world so that it's already there and ready when it's requested in a particular location and we're still at like this is still in the sort of thinking phase but it's this really interesting big problem and and what i'd like to see in the long run is people don't think about where their code runs or where their database is, they just, they write the code and it automatically moves to be close to whatever it is that it's interacting with. So if you have code that's interacting with the user a lot, that that code and the data, maybe the data that belongs to that user all automatically migrates to be in the closest Cloudflare location to that user. And if you have code that's interacting with say the Stripe API a lot, then it should automatically move to be sitting in the same you know, AWS data center that Stripe runs in. I think they use AWS, I'm not sure. So that it's right next to those servers and you get fast access to that, things like that. And as an application developer, you really have no reason to, to think about having one central server of your own. It's just your code runs wherever it makes most sense to run. Do you have a vision for how long it'll take to get there or how much progress has been made towards that vision? Because that's a lot of complicated scheduling that would have to go on. Yeah, well, as I said, we're, we're pretty early in thinking about this, but we have we have a few promising ideas. But it, it would be really hard to say at this point, you know, how long that's going to take to pan out. Fair enough. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to wrap up. Is there anything else you, you're excited about right now? Like maybe using Cloudflare workers for blockchain stuff or something. Any other closing thoughts on where this space is going or your, you know, your craziest ideas? You know, so working on a Sandstorm previously, a problem we were trying to solve was this uh, data privacy and, and data locality and dealing with regulations that exist around the world that say, like, your data must remain within these national borders or must not enter these national borders. And I think this is a problem that has been largely ignored by cloud services, software as a service industry up until this point. Um, I think a lot of people have just assumed that like these kinds of rules and these kinds of concerns would just go away at some point as everyone realized, oh, you know, cloud services are so great. Do I really care where my data is? Do I really need physical control over my data? But I don't think that's actually going to happen. I think the 
laws and these concerns all exist for very legitimate reasons. And the exact rules might change a little bit to account for technology, like account for the fact that if you're encrypting your data, then what really matters is the location of the key, not the location of the encrypted bytes. But I don't think the the fundamental concept is going to go away. And what I really like to do is make it easy for a, a startup. Like, you know, Google has servers all over the world. If Google needs to guarantee that your data doesn't leave the borders of Germany, it can actually do that. But if you're a startup in San Francisco and you're just a few people, this is like an intractable problem. And you end up saying, no, like, sorry, if you have these rules and we can't sell to you. But what if we could make this easy for users to be able to say, you know, I want my data to remain inside my country, or I want my data to remain actually on this device that I buy from Cloudflare or someone else that runs, that takes the the code from the cloud and brings it here and then runs it here so that my data stays here, even though I get the experience of using a cloud service and never having to update and, and so on. This is a problem that really interests me and that I hope we're going to be looking into. Well, and this might sound boring to some people, but I've had a few conversations about uh, GDPR recently. The, the, what is it? General Data Privacy Regulation or something. The, the whole UK thing, and I need to do shows on this as well, but uh, this is like, if you do not adhere to the policies of the UK in accordance with data privacy then it can cost you like a quarter of your revenue in the UK or something. They have some insane fine that they charge you. If if a customer can prove that you violated the privacy rules and those privacy rules are really, really hard for a cloud service provider to implement, especially if they've been operating for years and years and years and years without paying attention to GDPR. Now all of a sudden they've got to implement all these different things in six months or else they're they could potentially lose a quarter of their revenue for the year in the UK. That's I can see why you would want to focus on this. Yeah, my understanding is that that's not just the UK, but uh, general European regulation. I might be wrong. I, oh, I don't okay. know the exact details, but this is exactly my point, is that like Europe has always had a different opinion about privacy than a lot of the United States has had. And they're not just going to change their mind. In fact, the regulations are, we see them getting stricter. We can solve this problem through technology that makes it easy to keep data where the the users want it to be kept instead of just burying our heads in the sand and saying, well, you know, the users will come around and, and eventually let us do whatever. And yeah, I hope to see more of this happening and I hope to build some of it. All right, Kenton. Well, great talking to you uh, as usual. And your last episode was really popular. It was fantastic. So this was no uh, surprise that this one was a good one as well. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Wow.